Well, good evening, y'all. Welcome to Centerpoint uh, for our midweek refresh. We continue uh, walking through the book of Ezra, and uh, we come to Ezra chapter 8 tonight as we prepare for our time of prayer together. Um, the, the main point of, of this passage, if you're looking on your uh, study guide, if you'd like to take notes, um, is that the gracious hand of the Lord, that is a um, recurring phrase in Ezra, uh, one of Ezra's um, favorite phrases to recall the goodness of the Lord, the good hand of our God. Isn't that a beautiful way to say, to express the, the blessings of God? The hand of the Lord is upon Ezra and his people as they plan diligently and humbly seek his blessing for a long and dangerous journey. This is kind of the second um, migration uh, from Babylonia to Judah, to Jerusalem, uh, and a much smaller scale migration this time than the first time. So we'll talk about the comparison and contrast there, but four main points as I see it. One is family reunions. Uh, second is strategic planning, always an important part of Christian life and Christian pilgrimage. Uh, spiritual initiative, equally important part of a Christian life and pilgrimage. And then finally, lifestyle worship and praise. Not just as a duty, not just as a once a week thing, but a everyday lifestyle of worship and praise. So those four points this evening, um, I'd invite you to follow along with me as we read God's word. Ezra chapter eight, beginning in verse one. These are the heads of their father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, the sons of David, Haddish, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was the sons of Perosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, of the sons of Pehath Moab, Eliani, the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men, of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men, of the sons of Adin, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men, of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men, of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men, of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men, of the sons of Bani, Shelemith, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men, of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonikam, those who came later, their names being Eliphelet, Jael, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, 
and sent them to Ido, the leading man at the place Casaphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casaphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mele, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God, that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200, 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, Within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Miramoth, the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that the gracious hand of our Lord is upon your people. And thank you that because of that, 
You give us the ability to plan diligently and to humbly seek your blessing. And you promise to give that blessing in your own way and in your perfect timing to enable us to do exactly what you have prepared for us to do on our journey through life. So we pray that you would help us by your word to understand these things and apply these truths afresh to our hearts and to our lives so that we might be those who not only hear your word, but also put it into practice. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So first of all, family reunions, first 14 verses here. Um, you'll notice that if you compare this list with the list at the beginning of Ezra, almost all of the families were mentioned in the first group of returnees, the first group of, of uh, those who migrated back to Jerusalem from um, Babylonia, except for one family, and that family was the family of Joab, who you read about in verse nine. Other than that, all of these families you'll recognize if you were to do a comparison and contrast with the families that initially return. However, this is a much smaller group than the first group that came back. But Ezra leads this group back, and this account, as we read it together, reads a lot like a diary entry, doesn't it? Almost a journal written um, specifically and personally by Ezra to account for what he is experiencing as he's going along on this trip. And so it has an immediacy to it as he tells us firsthand about what's happening. Uh, this second migration is taking place some 80 years after the first one. So this is many, many years later, almost a century after the first return. And uh, we'll see that the, the work in Jerusalem has declined significantly since that first return. And a lot of the initial enthusiasm and energy that went into it has dissipated a bit. But nevertheless, uh, Ezra's return is about to kickstart it, uh, and his prayers for Jerusalem are about to be answered in a mighty way. This is about a thousand mile journey. Uh, it is no picnic, it is no walk in the park. Um, there were no uh, interstates at that time, and there were no Concorde jets to, um, to carry you a thousand miles in just a few hours. I remember helping my, my friend um, about 15 years ago move from um, South Carolina to Ontario, California, and we drove a Penske truck across the country. It took us four days. Uh, that would have even been unimaginable to this group. It took them four months to go the distance from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And it was a difficult country to traverse. Um, it was wilderness. Um, it, was, it was fraught with robbers and bandits and wild animals and lions and tigers and bears and the whole nine yards. And it was so it's hard traveling for them as they traveled with their children and with their goods and with what they'd need in Jerusalem. So a long journey that took four months uh, from about April, May-ish to about June or July-ish in our months. So all of these families except Joab had members who returned with the original group of returnees. So you can imagine the family reunions uh, that would take place. It's very likely that members of families had not seen each other in that long um, and, and probably their correspondence was very, very limited. So there were some family reunions once they arrived in Jerusalem. Notice that uh, 12 families are represented here. That is probably not 
uh, coincidental, probably not an accident. 12 is a very important number in the Old Testament, isn't it? And in the New Testament for that matter. The 12 tribes of Israel we think about. And I believe we're being told something here as Ezra would remind us that just as God's people were originally organized into 12 tribes, they're now being reorganized as they return back and as they um, revamp and, and, and regroup as a people and build not only the temple in Jerusalem, but rebuild their entire way of life as a worshiping community, as God's kingdom of priests, uh, from which God will, of course, bring his son into the world as the Messiah, uh, the seed, singular, of Abraham, who will eventually come uh, from this renewed community of faith. And that is what the Lord is, is driving at here. That's, that's the main reason that he's reorganizing his people, sending them back to the land that he promised Abraham so long ago, so that one day he could bring his son, the seed of Abraham, into the world to save the world. Um, you'll notice that among the descendants who come are the descendants of David, uh, which is noteworthy. And it's a little curious uh, why Ezra doesn't make more of that connection. Uh, it's, it's significant that one of David, King David's descendants is among the returnees here, but he simply mentions it in passing. Nevertheless, it is pretty obvious that Ezra is a meticulous record keeper. Uh, he, he keeps very accurate records of what's going on. Uh, details are supremely important to Ezra for obvious reasons. And when we total up all of these numbers of the uh, members of, of each uh, family unit, uh, which I did not do, I, I read commentaries and took their word for it um, because I, um, yes, math is not my thing. But if you total up all those numbers, you'll see that the original total that returned some 80 years prior was 49,000. 897, which in itself was only a small number compared to the entire community of God's people, a remnant of a remnant. Um, but this group is much, much, much smaller. Um, only the men are listed here. If you factor in the fact that there were certainly other women and children with them as well, you come up with a number that's around five to 7,000. So just a, a fraction of the number that returned um, 80 years prior. Why is that? Well, uh, there are probably many reasons for it. Um, one of the obvious reasons is that maybe there were fewer people in Babylonia still to return. And that's probably true. But there's also a sense in which there's probably a spiritual declension that has happened. Um, God's people have, have lost their zeal and lost their energy and lost their um, uh, passion for obedience and for returning and rebuilding their way of life under his hand. Um, it's kind of like uh, when a, a new church is planted um, at the beginning, there's a lot of enthusiasm and there's a lot of money that's invested in the project and, and everybody wants to be a part of it because it's new and novel and exciting and look at what the Lord's doing. But then reality and problems and, and things endemic to living in a fallen world always set in and, and some of the fire is lost over time. And so it becomes more of a challenge 10 or 20 years down the road to, 
to keep the energy and the enthusiasm and the fire and the uh, commitment to obedience going. And certainly after 80 years, after the initial push to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their way of life, uh, something of the initial novelty and excitement and passion has died down. Um, And if we look at uh, what's going on here, we see that the work in Jerusalem has, has actually reached a pretty depressed part, and, and it's sort of discouraging, and they run into lots of problems and trials and difficulties. And so Ezra has his work cut out for him as he emphasizes teamwork among God's people, as he emphasizes everyone being a part of this rebuilding, as he uh, delegates tasks to the Levites and to the priests and to others, as he tries to get the entire community involved and and interested and and energized about this project. It's a difficult thing to do, but it's kind of a prelude to what we read about in the book of Ephesians where Paul is reminding God's people that the leaders, uh, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists are given to God's people not to do all the work, but to train the people to get involved and to use their gifts and talents and and to use their God-given abilities to build up the church so that it becomes mature. And so it takes everyone to do that. And uh, those who are idle in that task soon become disgruntled and and discontented and unhappy. Uh, God's church works so much better when everyone is recognizing their own spiritual giftedness and everyone finds their, their part and jumps in and gets busy and gets excited about what's going on. And so that's what Ezra is set out to do here. So that takes a couple of things. Uh, It takes strategic planning. It's always important for God's people to plan. There's nothing unspiritual uh, about planning and planning well and planning carefully. I am not the greatest planner in the world. I am married to a very good planner. The Lord knew what he was doing when he gave me uh, a wife that plans well. Um, but I, I see the importance of it, and I want to grow in that ability to plan well. But Ezra is a, a wise administrator. He takes very careful inventory of his people and of their supplies and of their gifts and of their resources to see this task through. Uh, so he actually pauses here at the, the river at Nahava, and he gathers his people together for three days and he uses that time to take stock and to take inventory and to see what they have and what they need and what they can work with. And he realizes once he does that, that there are zero Levites among these people. And the Levites are the equivalent of the priests, the, the pastors, the leaders, the spiritual leaders among the people. And obviously, Once they return to Jerusalem, they will need Levites. They'll need Levites along the way. They'll need temple servants. They'll need people to run all kinds of errands around the temple and to keep their sacrificial system going strong. And so he takes initiative to round up a bunch of Levites who will be needed. And so he appoints leading men, we're told, uh, from nearby Casaphia. And he rounds up men of insight Presumably that means men with insight into the scriptures and men who will be persuasive in finding Levites and persuading them that 
You know, this is your job. This is what you're called by God to do. Your, your job is needed among God's people, so we really need you, and, and God has called you to this, and it's time to get busy. So they, they end up rounding up a total of 38 Levites. Now, that's still a pretty small number, but it's a lot better than zero. And so these Levites are charged with a big job. Along with them, they round up also 220 temple servants. And these are people who would do more menial tasks uh, in gathering sacrifices or, or, or rounding up firewood or cleaning the temple, things of this nature. It reminds me of the importance among God's people of unsung, humble servants. Uh, one of the churches I, I served in the past had a pretty good sized congregation between four and 500 people, but a very, very small staff of just three or four. And for some reason, I, I didn't bother to find that out before I was their pastor and was there. And once I realized uh, the number of staff relative to the number of members of the church, I thought, oh no, what have I gotten myself into? But this church was also blessed with an army of unsung, humble, rather anonymous servants. And about 85% of them were women. And they were very busy and they took inventory and they took initiative and they worked hard and they wanted no credit for it. And it just made the church run like a well-oiled machine. And it reminded me of the benefit of those who do menial tasks very, very well for the Lord and how important that is to the uh, efficient and healthy functioning of a church. And so that's the case here. These unsung heroes, these uh, humble servants are needed among God's people. And Ezra's uh, initiative in rounding them, all, rounding them up really pays off and he finds enough to help with the task. Again, they are a small number relative to the size of the people, but uh, it's a job that is able to be done. So this 1,000-mile trip from Babylonia to Jerusalem will be fraught with danger and difficulty and trial and all kinds of uh, uh, peril, and so they're going to need more than simply wise planning, but they won't need less than wise planning. Wise planning is, is so necessary and useful. And so we see Ezra setting a very good example there and taking three days to, to take careful inventory of what is needed for this. So what's going to protect God's people in this task? Well, next he takes spiritual initiative and we see this in verses 21 through 23. Uh, Ezra adds to that strategic planning a humble reliance on God. He realizes that God and God alone can see them safely from Babylonia to Jerusalem uh, despite all the trials that await them. So Ezra realizes their dependence upon God for his safety and for his protection, for traveling mercies, if you will, uh, I know it's a common practice for us to pray at the outset of a journey, going to see 
uh, friends or family members who have to travel long distances to do so, uh, it is uh, a good idea to say a prayer. Lord, see us safely there because uh, not only do we need to be careful in our driving, but we have to um, uh, be careful and protect ourselves from the other lunatics on the road, right, who make poor decisions sometimes. And so it is a very good thing, a spiritual precedent for it in Scripture uh, to pray for traveling mercies. Notice that they pray for their kids um, and for their stuff as well. Uh, and we see that it's not an unspiritual thing to pray for rather mundane issues like their possessions. Uh, God has called them to be wise stewards of their possessions. And so they pray uh, for the safety of their children and they pray for the safety of their possessions, that they will all make it safely. So he shows that he's very humbly dependent by devoting himself and the people to prayer and to fasting. So they fasted before the Lord and sought his blessing upon their journey. And Ezra had told the king, uh, this is King Artaxerxes, again, uh, decades after the initial return to Jerusalem, told King Artaxerxes about their trust in God and, and prayed a, made a pretty brave boast in God. And he demonstrates the trust that he has in God by, by telling the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And Ezra realized that having done that, now God's reputation is at stake. And so he can't very well ask the king for the help of pagan soldiers to protect them on their journey from Babylonia to Jerusalem because he'd already told the king, our God and our God alone is necessary and he can get us safely there and we put our trust in him. And so Ezra realizes that the reputation of God's at stake and he decides to trust God and God alone to get them there. So he doesn't want to be able to he doesn't want to say that a, a bunch of pagan soldiers uh, deserve the credit for seeing them safely to Jerusalem. He wants God and God alone to get the credit for it. And so he places his trust in the Lord and takes what we might call as a spiritual calculated gamble there, but it pays off. God does see them safely to their destination. Notice um, how how we're told that Ezra uh, sought the Lord here. He said, verse 23, we fasted and implored our God for this. There's a sense of fervency in his praying. It, it wasn't just one of those Hollywood prayers that says something like, God, we don't know if you're even up there, or if you hear us, but if so, can you kind of throw a bone our way? It wasn't like that at all. Notice that there's a, a, a covenant uh, faithfulness to his prayers we implored our God that he might help us and he listened to our entreaty so this is a, a God who knows his people and is known by his people they're in a covenant relationship and so there's a sense of, of fervency and heartfelt trust that Ezra is pouring out to this covenant God and he is confident that this God who belongs to his people uh, is is ready to listen and to send blessings and to send protection. And that's exactly what happens. So God graciously responds to their fasting. 
and to their prayer, and he protects them on this dangerous journey. And Ezra gives us a hint of what kind of dangers he protects them from. He says he protects them from ambush and from enemies along the way. Again, this was a perilous journey and a lot could have gone wrong. It could have ended in catastrophe. They may never have made it to Jerusalem, but God is the one who sends them safely there. And he does it in response to their heartfelt prayers, to their imploring him in the context of this covenant relationship to get them there. So strategic planning plus spiritual initiative That makes for a very powerful combination. If you can combine those two things in any journey of life, it's a powerful combination. So Ezra plans strategically, and then he adds to that spiritual initiative and initiative in prayer. And it makes for very sound leadership here. So Ezra shows a lot of wisdom. Uh, He's very pious. He's very faithful. He's what we might call shrewd. And he's also grateful. Once the Lord gets them to Jerusalem from Babylonia, he pours out his heart in gratitude. He wanted God and God alone to receive the praise for getting them home. And once he does, Ezra makes sure that he returns gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord and to the Lord alone. And finally, lifestyle worship and praise. Ezra is very quick to recognize the Lord's goodness in answering his prayer and giving them protection. This trip from Ahava to Jerusalem is bookended, you might say, by times of worship. They worship at the outset as they seek the Lord's face. And then having arrived there safely, uh, they don't neglect to praise the Lord and to worship him and to give him thanks for what he's done for them. This worship entails sacrifice So we're told about the sacrificing of many bulls. Uh, Notice that there are 12 bulls uh, because the entire community is repenting of their sins. All Israel, we're told, repents of their sins and they sacrifice 12 bulls, one to represent each tribe of Israel. And that burnt offering entails the total consecration of God's people, giving them up giving themselves up to him. This living sacrifice of ourselves is the only acceptable response that we can have to God's gracious love to us. Uh, We're told in the book of Romans that this is our reasonable sacrifice. This is our our, uh, proper uh, response of worship to what God has done for us. So with that in mind, Let's turn our attention to prayer and let's pray fervently as we implore implore the Lord uh, for the things that we need and things that our church needs and the things that missionaries need. And if you need a a prayer guide, Scotty's going to help pass those out. Thank you, Scotty. Why don't we spend our first few moments as we normally do uh, praising God for who he is worshiping and adoring him and to recognize who we are in light of him let's pray to God now